0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Tuesday, the 31st of October. I'm Sabra Lane, coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. Benjamin Netanyahu says Israel will not agree to a ceasefire in Gaza. The Israeli Prime Minister says agreeing to a cessation would be surrendering to barbarism. Mr Netanyahu's held a media conference telling reporters the military operation is the only hope of getting more the more than 200 hostages taken by Hamas during its attack on Israel on October the 7th back. I spoke with our Middle East correspondent Alison Horn.
1: This is quite an unusual thing for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to do. You know, I've lived in Jerusalem for nearly two years now and he hasn't once held a press conference to answer questions from international media. This is his first press conference for international media since this war has begun. So uh, there was a lot of questions around the israeli strategy and what's happening inside gaza and what's happening in the efforts to find hostages as well i think one of the key issues to come out of this was around negotiations for a ceasefire we have heard so many groups particularly humanitarian and aid groups calling for either a partial humanitarian ceasefire or a complete ceasefire uh, because we're seeing this unfolding crisis within Gaza, uh, pretty emphatically, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu put that issue to bed and said that there would be no ceasefire. So a real rallying call here through this press conference of Benjamin Netanyahu. Have a listen.
2: Israel will not agree to a cessation of hostilities with Hamas after the horrific attacks of October 7th. Calls for a ceasefire are calls for Israel to surrender to Hamas, to surrender to terrorism, to surrender to barbarism, that will not happen.
0: Alison, Israel says it's freed a soldier taken by Hamas on October the 7th. What more do you know?
1: Yeah, so this has come out just a short while ago. Israel says that it has managed to free a soldier by the name of Private Ori Magadesh, a female soldier that was taken by Hamas on October 7. They didn't give a lot of details on the circumstances of her release, apart from saying that she has since undergone medical checks and is doing well, according to the Israeli military. We have seen some uh, pretty excited celebrations outside her home in the south of Israel. Family and friends have been gathering there as they've been receiving the news that she She has been freed, but I guess this really goes towards what Benjamin Netanyahu has been saying as to why he sees this ground offensive as so integral to his plan for this war, Uh, he says that he needs to have foot soldiers on the ground there to physically go and find and rescue these 230-odd hostages that are still being held inside Gaza. Now, we don't know whether Private Ori Megadesh was found within a tunnel or if she was found. Within a, within a house, and this really goes to how much effort um, Benjamin Netanyahu and his team say that they are putting in to try and get these hostages back.
0: That's our Middle East correspondent Alison Horn reporting there from Tel Aviv. United Nations workers in Gaza are pleading for a ceasefire. They say supplies are running low, and that many Palestinians caught in the middle of the conflict are queuing for hours to get bread and water. They're particularly worried about children. More than 3,000 have been killed since fighting started less than a month ago, according to the Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry. Oliver Gordon reports.
3: Dozens of aid trucks have entered Gaza in recent days. But humanitarian workers say supplies are still desperately low. UN aid worker Inas Hudman spoke to AM from southern Gaza, where reception is still patchy. Generally,
4: the situation is catastrophic.
3: There have been reports of break-ins at warehouses holding humanitarian supplies in Gaza. Inas Hudman says people are at breaking point.
4: Clean water is
0: very scarce. Um, People stand in lines for hours to get a few litres of water. They stand in lines for hours to get a few loaves of bread.
3: Our phone call ends abruptly here. UN Relief and Works Agency, or UNRWA spokesperson, Juliet Tuma, says it's been hard to reach her colleagues in Gaza
4: especially uh, since uh, on Saturday there was a complete blackout on communications. Now, some areas of Gaza managed to restore internet connectivity, but it continues to to be patchy.
3: She's particularly concerned for the many children caught in the middle of this conflict.
4: There are 300,000 kids who normally go to UN schools, to UNRWA schools. They have not, of course, been able to go to school for the past for the past three weeks, and so the the loss on 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 their education is is huge. The longer they stay out of school, the more difficult it becomes for children to to um, to catch up. Right. Um, so that, there's that. But there's also the psychological impact on 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 children. The psychological impact actually across the board, but specifically with children, the displacement, the fear. Children in Gaza are going through what no child in the world should go through.
3: The UN spokesperson wants the world to know what's needed in Gaza right now.
4: A ceasefire for the war to come to an end for the sake of civilians, wherever they are. We are terrified for our staff in Gaza. We're terrified. We have already at UNRWA lost 59 colleagues of ours who were killed during this war. And only in the past three weeks, there were teachers, doctors, engineers, support staff, um, human resources. I mean, it's just been a colossal loss for us. And it's very, very sad. We we grieve them. We remember them. We will never be the same without those colleagues. UNRWA will never be the same.
0: Juliette Tumor from the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, Oliver Gordon, reporting there. United Nations resolution calling for humanitarian truce between Israel and Hamas passed the UN's General Assembly last week, but it didn't have unanimous support. Australia abstained from the vote, and we spoke with the Foreign Minister about that yesterday, but a number of our close neighbours opposed it. Six Pacific countries voted against the resolution, sparking controversy in the region. Marion Farr reports.
5: Speaking in Canberra earlier this month, Fiji's Prime Minister Sidoveni Rambuka called for a zone of peace in the Pacific.
6: And we all strive to do everything we do in our own uh, territories, in our own countries, to promote peace.
5: Two weeks later... He's being accused of not sticking to his principles. Fiji was among six Pacific countries to vote against a UN resolution calling for an immediate humanitarian truce between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. It comes after weeks of fighting and the deaths of thousands of civilians on both sides. How can we say we are working towards a region of peace when this humanitarian call, this call for a ceasefire,
4: is voted against?
5: Secretary-General, General of the Pacific Conference of Churches, Reverend James Bugwan, is among many to criticise Fiji's position.
4: It's a great tragedy when we look at the innocent lives that are caught in conflicts such as these.
5: Of the 14 nations that voted against the resolution, almost half were from the Pacific. They include Papua New Guinea, Marshall Islands, Nauru, the Federated States of Micronesia, Fiji and Tonga. Dr Tess newton Kane, an expert in Pacific politics from Griffith University, says it's a noteworthy cohort. To my mind, there's no question that Israel or possibly the U.S. has sought to influence voting in the region. Both Israel and the United States also voted against the resolution. The countries have been strengthening diplomatic ties in the Pacific, with PNG recently opening a new embassy in Jerusalem. Dr Kane says the diplomacy efforts are paying off. You can garner a significant number of votes in the UN by building relationships across the Pacific Islands region. Like Australia, Kiribati, Palau, Vanuatu and Tuvalu abstained from the vote, but there was one outlier. Solomon Islands, which is kind of a standout for voting in favour of the motion, may have taken its lead from the Chinese position. In Fiji, the vote has attracted backlash not just from citizens and civil society groups, but also from the Deputy Prime Minister. But not everyone agrees. Mikael Mundralangi is a Fijian member of the International Christian Embassy in Jerusalem and was in Israel when Hamas's attack took place on October 7.
4: The picture comes up of those citizens who welcomed us being dragged, the babies killed.
5: Mikael Mundralangi says he's confident in Fiji's stance.
0: A man with lifelong disability is taking his fight to gain access to the National Disability Insurance Scheme to the United Nations. He's made a formal complaint accusing the government of age discrimination and breaching his human rights because the NDIS is not available to people over 65. More now from National Disability Affairs reporter Naz Campanella. When the National Disability Insurance Scheme was rolled out
7: 10 years ago, Peter Freckleton assumed he'd be able to access the supports it offered. He contracted polio as a child, which paralysed both his legs. He's been a longtime user of various mobility aids, including a wheelchair. But his application to be a participant in the NDIS was knocked back.
5: I got a letter rejecting my application on the basis of age. They didn't query by disability. It's so unfair.
7: The Victorian resident was hoping to access new leg braces and have modifications done to his home through the NDIS. He's now made a complaint to the United Nations, claiming that being excluded because he's over the age of 65 is a breach of the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disability.
5: So I feel obliged to take it as far as I can on behalf of a number of people who are being
4: really Really cruelly and unfairly treated.
7: Peter is being supported by the Public Interest Advocacy Centre. Sheethul Balakrishnan is a lawyer at the centre. She says that before going to the UN, Peter had to exhaust all legal avenues at home to have the age cap removed. That included making a complaint to the Australian Human Rights Commission. The Australian Human Rights Commission simply doesn't have the power to do that. That power is only held by Parliament. So, Peter doesn't have any legal remedy within Australia, which is why he's complaining to the UN. Once the Australian government makes their response, the UN committee ultimately will decide the issue. Peter's case is the latest in a long campaign to lift the age cap. A proposed class action alleged excluding over 65s from the scheme was unlawful. In 2021, support provider Spinal Life Australia launched a campaign to apply pressure ahead of the federal election and almost 25,000 people have signed a petition for the cap to be removed. Spinal Life's Chief Executive Mark Townan says people with disability aged over 65 are forced to rely on the aged care system, which is not
2: structured to deal with their unique needs. You get services to get you out of bed one day a week compared to seven. So that means for six days of a week, you can't get the services to help you toilet, to help you actually shower, to help you get your food. So it's really important in a humane country like Australia that you have that support. And the only way it can happen is that everybody over 65 gets the same support through the aged care system or the NDIS.
7: In a statement, a government spokesperson says in response to the Aged Care Royal Commission, the government is considering changes to a new program of home support to be introduced in 2025. The program is designed to improve access to new technologies and home modifications, including for older people with disability who are not eligible for the NDIS. Peter Freckleton says his proposition is simple.
5: We're just asking to be treated like everybody else and to be allowed to apply for access to the NDS on the basis of disability without reference to age, race, gender or any other extraneous circumstance.
0: Victorian man, Peter Freckleton, ending that report by Naz Campanella. In regional towns across Tasmania, it's becoming increasingly difficult to see a doctor. Unviable clinics are closing their doors and GPs are leaving to work elsewhere. Some communities want to see nurse practitioners fill the gaps to ensure that patients can still access professional care. They're hoping the federal government will listen to their requests and allow changes to Medicare to make it happen. With more, here's Alexandra Humphreys.
2: Yvonne Miller lives near Ouse in Tasmania's Central Highlands. Her local doctor's surgery closed abruptly 18 months ago, so she's now forced to travel to a GP in another town. It's hard to get an appointment there, and when she does, it's a long drive.
0: Not being able to get to a doctor quickly. Um, I mean, the the doctors at at Bothwell are good. He's he's really good. But up at Ouse, you could ring and they would have emergency appointments there and then for the day. Her
2: husband recently suffered a medical episode, but they couldn't get a follow-up appointment for a week and a half. So he's missing out on all those days before he can get treatment. I mean, it's
1: a beautiful area to live. You're only an hour from Hobart. I just can't understand
2: why we can't attract a doctor.
4: This is a repeated story that we're hearing across Tasmania on a regular basis.
2: Bruce Levitt is the Chief Executive of Health Consumers Tasmania. He says thousands of patients have been affected by recent or impending GP closures across the state.
4: We need to mobilise all other health providers. Um, so that's nurse practitioners, community nurses, uh, it could be pharmacists, we, we need to, to get everybody to provide a door for people to get healthcare when they need it. Signet Family good morning, Margaret
2: speaking. This clinic is in Signet, an hour south of Hobart. It's co owned by nurse practitioner Kerry Duggan. As- a business owner now, you you need to have your appointment books filled with patients to actually run a successful business and that's contrary sometimes to meeting patients' needs. So she decided to try something new, setting up a service for after hours and urgent patients to see a nurse practitioner or primary care paramedic instead of a GP. They still offer many of the same services like treating wounds, organising prescriptions and ordering blood tests or x-rays. While that's doing your blood pressure on that arm, I'm just going to take your pulse With on the other state arm. government support, the service has seen 700 patients since April, people who otherwise would have needed to wait for a GP appointment or attend a hospital emergency department. Ms Duggan says changes to both Medicare and state laws are needed to make the idea financially viable long term. This model can work. It's a safe, quality, effective model. John Saul is the Tasmanian President of the Australian Medical Association.
0: It's one model that could really work well. If GPs and nurse practitioners could work together in a collaborative arrangement, then I feel that there's a real future for this. That's John Saul from the Australian Medical Association, ending that report by Alexandra Humphreys. In the United States, the White House has taken a major step to regulate artificial intelligence. Under a new executive order, AI developers will need to risk test their tools and share the results with the US government. North America correspondent Carrington Clark is at the White House.
6: Well, the president says that we're at an inflection point when it comes to artificial intelligence. uh, And now is the time where America needs to put in place what they've been describing as guardrails about the technology which means that he's asking government departments to come up with a set of standards and then those standards will need to be adhered to by the developers of ai technology he says although artificial intelligence offers great opportunities for americans and american companies pointing out positives like workers being able to find the quickest possible commute home using artificial intelligence he says there is danger inherent in the technology and points out that it's already being utilized for things like deep fakes, where video and images are able to be manipulated in order for people to appear to be saying something that they never even said. But this was the president speaking a little earlier today about the need to try to ward against that type of fake material.
2: Everyone has a right to know when audio they're hearing or video they're watching is generated or altered by AI. <clears throat> Thanks to this order, the Department of Commerce is gonna help develop standards to watermark and clearly label AI generated content. Just say this that's how it was generated. AI generated. That way you can tell whether it's real or it's not.
0: And Carrington, how has the AI industry reacted to this? Yes.
6: Well, we know in the lead-up to this that the industry was particularly concerned about what they have called potential over-regulation of the industry. They say they're effectively in an arms race with many other companies in other countries who have much more lax rules in some cases. And they're scared that if America puts in place regulations that other countries don't have, that it will be left behind. And obviously, the biggest concern for America would be that if Chinese companies are the ones who really own the artificial intelligence space. Now, even using the example that the president points to, this idea of watermarking images and video in order to make sure people know if images are fake, Uh, that comes across with great technical difficulty. How are they going to impose this? How is that watermark going to be so permanent or unremovable that people are able to be assured that it is properly documented when these things are generated so we wait to see exactly how they're going to be reacting to it and it should be pointed out that what the president announced today is just an executive order this is the president having the power in some limited places to impose his own rules but this is not an act of congress this isn't law and that means whoever the next president might be could easily overturn this with just the stroke of a pen
0: North America correspondent Carrington Clark. that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi,
7: I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. If you've ever been to a home auction, you know how stressful it can be and how hard it is to become the successful bidder. Today, the head of the Australian Housing and Urban Research Institute, Michael Fotheringham, and why we're so addicted to auctions and who they're really benefiting. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listener.